does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. I want to ask Stephen Holder how he hears this. Can he hear it, you think? Stephen, when Stevie Nicks is singing that right there, Stevie Nicks, Stephen Holder, uh, make, make acquaintance with one another. Uh, what, do, what do you think she's saying? What kind of dove is she singing about there? Um, I have no idea. I, I've heard that song before. I am not really super familiar with the lyrics. Um, so I don't know. I'd need to listen more carefully, maybe. But do you know? Now, could you hear it right there when we played it? I heard it, but I was I was distracted. Okay. Now, now I need you to be not distracted, Stephen. We're doing very professional radio here. Okay, that's true. That's okay. true. I, Eddie, I am play, part of the play company. it one more time, Eddie. That's right. You are part of the company. You're, part, you're the director of professionalism, Eddie. One more time, play it, and Stephen, listen closely. Here we go. Okay, what kind of dove? I. I don't know. I, I think I'm an idiot. I don't know. What am I missing? Well, she says white-winged dove, and apparently I'm an idiot because I never knew it was white-winged dove. I'm fairly certain she's saying one-winged dove. And here I was for like 40 oh. years thinking that she was philanthropic singing about a disadvantaged dove, right? <laughs> so, wait. So what are the lyrics? Just, what are the actual lyrics? Just like the white-winged dove. Oh, and you thought it was one wing. Yes. Okay. I thought the whole time, like, it was super so impressive. Sad. This dove was flying around with one wing. That would be so sad. <laughs> no, right? That would it's, be terrible. Right. Well, a one wing dove, yeah. like, you know, peace is, peace is in jeopardy because the dove only has one wing. It could go down at any moment. You know what I mean? <laughs> if I, this reminds me of the time my, my sister, uh, when we were kids, I think found like an injured dove in the backyard and like tried to hang on to it. And in this makeshift cage, I, I think it was like a milk crate or something she put over it. And it was like, this was the most, like the most haphazard thing. It was, it was, it was kind of like a hood pet. Did the dove make it? Uh, it, it died. <laughs> it okay. died. It was cause, but probably cause it wasn't eating. We didn't, I don't know that she fed it. I was like, this was a very ill-conceived. What did you grow up with, Prince? He, here's the thing: you, you grew up in Miami, though. That wasn't a dove. That was a that was a seagull. Just so you know, or or like one of those white pigeons or something. <laughs> right, I don't know. right. Um, <laughs> Probably. Hey, okay. Let's terrible segue here, but nonetheless, um, which which Colts right now? Speaking of injuries, right? I, I thought Juju Brents might have been ready to go. Obviously, needs more time. Wasn't there for Cincinnati. The Colts are a little banged up in that defensive backfield. Where do things stand first and foremost? And I know that like this week they haven't done anything yet, so it's kind of hard to say. But uh, you know, is where are we in particular with Brents? That is a huge mystery. And the update as of today, just leaving uh, the facility now. The update as of today is uh, there may be an opportunity this week for him, but. the best I, I don't know what to make of it i mean juju brents is walking around the locker room every day on two legs um that doesn't mean anything but i'm just saying he he looks like a guy who's pretty mobile um he's he's been saying for weeks that he's close but uh, he has been intentionally vague about the details of his injury and i think he's taking his cues from his head coach they all do now uh, they're they're walking and talking um, Steichenism now, you know, or Steichen's language, I guess. So anyway, it, it's become pretty difficult to get details when when you have you know one of these ongoing situations like that. So I don't know. I, I wish I could be more specific, but I, I I can't right now. But I I will say you are correct. Uh, they really do miss him. Uh, the depth in the uh, defensive backfield has been an issue all year. And I think you, you really miss it against a team like Cincinnati. And so people ask, you know, why did they give up those big screens, those big screenplays? Part, part of the reason and part of the answer is because uh, they were very – they played very soft uh, against those receivers and played very deep. So it, it gave away a lot of underneath stuff because uh, they were 
frankly, very afraid to give up big plays in the passing game against Jamar Chase and T. Higgins, for example. So they did a good job. It was effective. That that strategy was effective to some degree, but it also uh, wound up meaning that they gave up those those big screen plays, uh, three of them alone for 124 yards. Hey, Stephen, looking at the run game, and you know Zach Moss has not been able to replicate yet what he did at the start of the season, and maybe that was why the Colts' run game was so satisfying because Moss was doing what you would think Jonathan Taylor would have done to begin the season. So that's not happening right now. And when Taylor had the surgery, I think the first number that came back was two to three weeks, right? And you know Shane right. Steichen saying saying today when he was asked, you know, is the plan for him to come back and play this season? You know, he's saying that's the plan. Uh, is, is there an urgency? that you can sense to get Taylor back out there quicker than anticipated because Moss has not been able to replicate what he did to begin the campaign? Well, I mean, if, if there was – if he's if he was able to play, they'd put him out there. But I, I think there is legitimate concern about his ball handling, you know, if he's not quite ready. And that's the thing. I mean, if he – if you're talking about – an injury to a, a different extremity, there might be a different calculation. Uh, but here you're talking about the ball security and there's nothing more important than the ball. I just think that's going to have to be a, an ongoing evaluation. And, and they can't really take chances on that. If, he, if they're not sure, I just think he has to sit. You know, I mean, it, it's not worth the trade-off if you're not sure that he can hang on to the football. You know, it's not worth the trade-off of putting him out there when you're less than certain that he'll have good ball security. It's just, you just can't do it. So I think they're in a different circumstance with a different injury. They might handle it differently. They might push him along and, and make him uh, or allow him maybe to get back out there before he's hundred percent. But I mean, here, I just think you really have to be careful and tread lightly. And I think they will. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Stephen, Stephen Holder is our guest, by the way, from ESPN. He joins us here on the program talking about the Colts. Um, when you look at this matchup, and I know that we're probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but what we know about Pittsburgh is this. Historically speaking, the Colts have struggled with that franchise. Historically speaking means nothing because, you know, I don't see necessarily like Neil O'Donnell going out there, right? Right. That said, what we know now is that Mitchell Trubisky will be under center and that uh, Kenny Pickens, his little hands, won't be out there. <laughs> How much does that change, Pittsburgh? We look at it and we go, well, man, they're down their starter. But Trubisky's an experienced guy, and is there a huge drop-off from one to the other? No, for me, the big concern is still the defense. I don't think it changes how I see that team. Uh, they're a team that that is going to thrive if their defense thrives. Uh, they have not been putting up huge offensive numbers at all this year, I mean, even with their starting quarterback. So I'm not saying there's no difference, but, but I don't think it's going to be the difference in this game. You know, I, I just don't believe that to be the case. Uh, this is a, an aggressive defense, a physical defense, you know, we'll see what happens with T.J. Watt and his, uh, I believe he's still in concussion protocol, which would be a huge, frankly, a huge break for the Colts if he doesn't play, let's just be honest. I mean, given what we saw uh, against Trey Hendrickson uh, against Cincinnati the other day and the struggles the Colts had blocking him, uh, I mean, I shudder to think what it might look like against T.J. Watt, who is as good as it gets uh, I think he, he is on par, obviously, with Miles Garrett, and you saw what Miles Garrett did. Uh, so you're talking about the elite of the elite, and the Colts have had, you know, have had some, some struggles against guys like that this year. So that's really, that's really what it's going to boil down to, how they handle that defense and, and whether they can allow Minshew to stay clean and whether they can generate some, some running game uh, to, to get some balance back. I mean – this is the other thing I'll mention here, and then I'll move on. I wrote a story today about the, the struggles of the running game. And right now, again, this is an oversimplification, and I, I tweeted this, so I admit to that. However, just look at the raw numbers. With Jonathan Taylor in the lineup this season, the Colts, 
4.4 yards per carry. That's pretty good. That is top 10 in the league in those particular games, in that span of games. Seven games, I think. And games without Jonathan Taylor. Talking about while he was on the pup list and during this current stretch where he has been uh, or he underwent thumb surgery, 3.6 yards per carry. So 4.4 versus 3.6. Maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but you multiply that over dozens and hundreds of carries, and that's a ton of yards over the course of the season. Stephen Holder is our guest. Stephen, I want to go back to Brennan's question about the running game and Zach Moss. You know, obviously Taylor out. Um, I'll begin with the Taylor side of things. We haven't really discussed this with you much. Do you believe the Colts were 100% absolutely, understandably on board with the surgery that has shelved Jonathan Taylor, or would they have liked to have seen him get a little duct tape and play through it? No, uh, the sense that I got was, was that it, it, it would have been difficult. Um, the stability of the, of the ball as he's carrying it would have, would have made you know, rehabbing it versus having surgery difficult. Okay. So you had to fix it, is what I understand. Yeah. In terms of their inability to effectively run the ball against Cincinnati, I mean, how much of that's on the Bengals, and how much of that is a was that like an anomaly, or as I always say, at the end of year, sometimes things that percolated over the course of the year all start to show themselves in mass. Was there smoke and mirrors about the Colts' running game earlier in the year, or was this a one-game anomaly? Well, I would say it's actually not a one-game anomaly because you saw it the previous week against Tennessee as well. That's the problem. I think if this were the first time we had seen that kind of rushing performance, that would be one thing. But I I don't think it was. I mean, again, uh, Tennessee, I think they they were under three yards per carry against Tennessee, also without Taylor. And then this week, under three yards per carry again. That's not sustainable. I mean, it, you're, you have to have a, a pretty prolific passing game, as they did in Tennessee, to win when, when that's the kind of rushing production you're getting. You can do it, and teams do do it. I mean, the Buffalo Bills have had situations like that you know, over the last few years where they didn't really try to run the football very much. They didn't generate much, but they, they had a prolific passing game, and their quarterback often ran for a lot of yards. So – in a very specific situation, you can overcome that, but it, it has to be a very narrow situation, and, and that is not the Colts right now. They don't have a prolific passing game. Uh, do I think they were smoking mirrors early? Um, what I'd say is I think teams have a better read on how to defend them now with Gardner Minshew as opposed to when he was just becoming the starter and also in and out of the lineup, you know, as Anthony Richardson kind of had those brushes with injuries early on before the, the season-ending injury. So the situation now is different. I mean, they have – I don't know how many games has Gardner Minshew started, right? I mean, uh, nine, eight or nine, you know. So they have a lot of film. They have their tendencies. They have their likes and dislikes, all of that. It makes it tougher, no doubt about it. Stephen Holder is our guest from ESPN. Uh, Stephen, obviously much better at deciphering and breaking down NFL games and film than he is rehabilitating peaceful birds that simply were trying to go through the backyard and get a little something to eat in Miami some years ago. It's my sister, uh, man. This is all her fault. <laughs> she should have let this. I mean, no, hold on. I, I just left it to die. Older or younger? Okay, okay. Here we go. I mean, great signs of peace. Older or younger sister? Younger sister, younger. Well, She's then, Stephen, you per- you were in charge. How can yeah. we trust you? Uh, well, yeah, I, I wasn't exactly uh, living up to my expectations, I suppose. Yeah, so uh, all right, I'll take that. I'll take that. How can he be our director of professionalism? <laughs> No, you have been you have been absolutely demoted, Stephen. You are on probation, and if we had an HR department, you'd report to him tomorrow. But we don't, so well, you're probably safe, right? Good thing we're short staffed. Hey, um. What is the what's the area of the Colts? We focus so much on this show, Stephen, on yeah. you know, we focus so much on like ball security. Obviously, you know, the defensive backfield, as we talked about with Juju Brents being out. And then all of a sudden, usually towards the end of the year, something happens to a team and you look at it and go, 
you know, the warning was there all along, and that's the one warning light we just didn't pay attention to. What area is that of the Colts that is a bigger concern than we publicly talk about? Um, I, I mean, I think <laughs> we probably have talked a lot about Gardner Minshew, but I mean, they, they've been, <laughs> they have been kind of piecing their passing game together. You know what I mean? And so it, it, this isn't necessarily meeting the qualification of your question because you said the area we don't talk about enough and we do, but I, I just think I, I would say this nationally, it's been kind of interesting nationally when I do interviews, be it on ESPN radio or whatever, right? I get a lot of questions about, well, I mean, how about that Gardner Minshew? Man, what a, what a year that guy's having. And it puts me in this situation where I have to kind of like set the record straight, but I have to do it without like slapping the guy over the head and, and insulting him because I don't think his play has been awful. I just, I don't, but I also don't think it has been spectacular, you know? So <laughs> it's just a, it's an interesting narrative that's out there. And, and a lot of times, you know, the broadcasters come into town, they see a couple of games of the Colts. And so, you know, they're making their, their judgments based on a very small sample size. It's not anybody's fault. I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone. I mean, we all do it, you know, for teams that we're not as familiar with, but it's, it's just kind of interesting how that's, how that's kind of taken shape this year. And that narrative's taken shape. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, we should probably be giving more credit to Shane Steichen, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, so not a great answer to your question, but it is, I have, I have kind of enjoyed watching that play out or like, let me put it this way. It's been interesting to watch that narrative take shape. And, and then, you know, when he doesn't perform well, then it's kind of like, well, you know, kind of told you that, but, but no, they, they, everybody involved has done a good job. We're, we're Minshew has, I think acquitted himself well, not this week, but um, in in previous weeks, is that and Rick Venturi actually kind of crystallized this for me in a in a recent conversation. He said his ability to shake off bad plays is elite, and it really is, and and he needs that right because he does make some mistakes sometimes. And you, you these head scratching decisions, and you're like, Steve, we lost you there for a second. So pick up where you were talking about how he does make some head scratching plays. Yeah, well, he'll he'll make the head scratching play, but his one of his greatest abilities is as uh, as I said, Rick Venturi and I talked about this the other day. He helped crystallize it for me. He said, you know, he'll make a bad play, and then what does he do? Like in Tennessee, uh, he may he makes a bad decision. They almost get intercepted on that game winning drive, and then what's he do? He turns around and he rips one for fifty five yards to Alec Pierce, like nothing ever happened. That's a great quality. It's a big quality because, I mean, look, I mean, he's an imperfect quarterback, and that's okay. We know that. But he does have the ability to, to bounce back from that and to, and to make plays that are, that are really impressive in the face of, uh, in the face of a, a bad play. You're not getting pulled over, are you, Stephen? I, I hear the no, gendarmes in the No, having a bad day, though, because someone's going to the hospital. So. Okay, well, <laughs> we hope everybody's okay. Um, yeah. Hey, Stephen, who's made more money for themselves in the last five weeks, Michael Pittman or Grover Stewart? Hmm. Well, Michael Pittman, because his contract's going to be bigger. But I do agree with the premise, though, when you mentioned uh, Grover Stewart. I mean, <laughs> now, it wasn't maybe quite as evident this week because they didn't have a great day defensively. But I would argue that, that Grover Stewart's presence in the middle actually – you know, probably influenced the Bengals to not try to run there as much. And, and that's where those screenplays maybe come in. You know, that was a, an intentional game plan by them. Uh, their game plan was certainly not to run up the middle. That is certainly not the case. I mean, they, were, they had some runs to the outside, uh, but they were not trying to run up the middle of the field, um, given the presence, I presume, the presence of, of Grover Stewart. But, uh, but Michael Pittman, though, I, I would say – Give him credit. I mean, he's the one guy who unequivocally showed up on Sunday. You know, his consistency is absolutely impressive. It's it's one of the best things about him is that he consistently shows up. And I love that he makes those plays even though the defense knows he's getting the ball. You know, and, and I think in talking to, like, a Isaiah McKenzie today, we we're talking about this whole – argument about, well, is he a number one receiver or is he not? And 
and as Isaiah said, he said, look, I, I don't care, man. He says he's our number one receiver. He says they know where the ball's going, and he makes those plays in spite of it. I mean, it's a big compliment to be able to say, look, we're going to throw you the ball no matter the defense, no matter the coverage, no matter how much attention you're drawing. I mean, that says something about a guy, and, and that's the way the Colts have, have conducted themselves uh, throwing to Gardner Minshew this season. Excuse me, throwing to Michael Pittman this season from Gardner Minshew. Steven, I've also got a this or that for you. Ronnie Harrison, product of the system, or is there some untapped potential there? There could be some untapped potential. I, I don't think we have enough sample size to know, but um, I would say that his his uh, you know defensive back skills certainly have come in handy a couple of times. I don't think that's a coincidence, you know, that he has made those plays on the ball. Um, what other linebacker has two interceptions this year? I'm not sure any of them do. Uh, he has, he has a, a nose for the ball, and and uh, you know one of the first interception he made, which I think was against I can't remember, but Tampa Bay maybe. Um, that was I'm not saying it was the, the, the toughest play in the world, but if you look at the one on Sunday, that's just an instinctive play. I mean, he's playing the ball as much as the man, and that's what you're taught as a defensive back, right? You're you're taught to play the football, and and that's just more instinctive for you. So I think that showed up. Uh, in the play that he made on Sunday. And, look, I, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I, again, we need more of a sample size and just his his overall uh, linebacker playing ability. But, you know, for a guy this deep into his career, I think this is his fifth season or something like that. Now, for a guy this deep into his career to make a, a position change and, and to be able to be a, a, a viable starter in a pinch like that, I mean – that says a lot about your ability just as a football player, period. Steven, probably at this point fading in relevance, but still topical. Uh, what did you think of, if at all, Shaquille Leonard's performances, assuming that you saw some of what he was able yeah. to do against Dallas? I did see it. Um, I thought, look, I mean, he he moved pretty well. I mean, as as well as as I've seen him move this year, you know whether that's good enough to be the old Shaquille Leonard. That's a different question, um, you know. But look, he's probably still a little timid just because he's trying to kind of you know learn learn the scheme and, and understand where he's supposed to be all the time and all that. So you know, probably not the best game to judge him by. Um, but look, he he's going to have to adapt to a a very small role. That's pretty clear. I mean, he's not going to play a ton. And and even if he even when he gets the scheme down and he, he has a better understanding, I still don't think he's going to be a guy who who plays you know, wire to wire for for Philadelphia short of you know additional injuries. So, but good for him. I'm happy for him. I hope I hope the Eagles go a long way and uh, he gets a chance to enjoy the ride because um, he you know he's, he's a good good guy, good player, and um, I still wish him the best. Lastly, we had a guy on. Uh, before the Colts-Bucks game from Tampa, an area that where you used to work, obviously, you're a native yeah. of Florida. I have probably asked you this privately before. I'll ask you publicly now. You know, you, you would have known no different. I realized that when you were a kid growing up. But all of the imagery, all of the songs, all of the, <laughs> the legend of Christmas is about snow and bells and sleigh riding and big coats on Santa and and all of it and you know what I mean and chimneys and all of it right yeah was it odd I mean I guess you knew no different but was it weird living in for you a warm weather shorts and t-shirt climate at Christmas time <laughs> well your your instinct is right I mean I didn't know any better so it's what we knew but I it was very conflicting, like watching the Christmas specials, you know, be it, you know, whatever, you know, your favorite Christmas movie yeah, is. Frosty and, or the Abominable Snowman or yeah, any of it, right? And having, yeah, and having no understanding whatsoever of what any of that stuff was like. And so it's completely unrelatable to you. It's completely unrelatable. I always tell this all the time. I think I, I've probably said this to you. I mean, growing up, what you wanted for Christmas was a bike. Why? Because everybody got a bike for Christmas, and on on that afternoon, everybody meet on you know on the corner, and they all ride your bikes on Christmas afternoon. We ain't riding bikes on Christmas afternoon in in Indianapolis for the most part, at least not for fun, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, it 
it's a culturally just a completely different thing and very strange. Uh, there was, though, um, in the year of my birth, 1976, uh, we had a trace of snow in South Florida. Not on Christmas, but, uh, but there was a trace of snow. The only time on record that I'm aware of, 1976, you can look that up. In, in Miami, there, was a, there were flurries. And um, known yeah. known affectionately there as the blizzard of '76, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, it was it was awful. It was awful. So, you know, there was a. I don't know if you know this or not, but Scarface had a blizzard of '81 in Miami in the area as well, right? Just so we yes, know. And um, that one that one definitely was a blizzard. That, yes. Now, <laughs> Stephen, here's the thing: you had to have been also miffed by the fact that a guy was able to pull around a sleigh with flying reindeer, and you couldn't save a bird. That's fair. That's fair. But also, but along the same lines, though, of, of, you know, just being unrelatable, like how was the sleigh coming to my house when, when it's 70 degrees on Christmas, right? Like how did that not click for me that's, when I was a kid? I must have been an a good idiot. Point. That's a good point. Well, Santa, he's got on a Speedo under the coat, just so you know, Steve, right. just for I when mean, he has like, to go south. Okay. Well, he goes around, sense. he goes the whole world, so he goes to warm places as well, so he packs accordingly, Stephen. Uh, whole, Stephen Holder, ESPN. Dumb. They they really think little of kids. Like they just don't. They don't. Come think on, we're very kids. Kids listening. It's the <laughs> hey magic now, of Christmas. I was about to say, don't spoil it now for any kids that are out there listening. <laughs> uh, it's the Steven. magic of Christmas. That's the magic, the beauty of Santa Claus, and why he's able to go around the world. In he's one amazing. Evening. He is that. He's amazing. He is exactly that. Uh, Stephen Holder, ESPN. Appreciate the conversation. We'll talk to you next week. All right. All right. See you guys. Thanks, Stephen. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Alex Goldner, are you a fan of Separate Ways by Journey? Yeah, I mean, how could you not be, Jake? That just seems kind of sad if you're not. <laughs> it's not even one of their three best songs. Oh, I, I know that. I just like Journey in general. Any Journey song is cool. I, I will say this. The Stranger Things remake of that song is pretty awesome. Okay, fair enough. Now, Stranger Things, is that show still going? They got one more season left. Um, I think they're airing, they're filming it now. I think the, I think it's supposed to be coming out next year. What, what season are they on now? I, I want to say five. It might and, be and six, but I, I can't remember. Have people stayed with it, or has the interest level petered out? <clears throat> as far as I know, the interest level has stayed with it. Okay, but I know that the actors are getting tired of, of filming it because it's been such a long time. <laughs> now they don't film it in Indiana, right? Doesn't it take place in Indiana? Yeah, it takes place in Indiana. Last last season, it kind of like they moved from Indiana to California. Oh, it's like Stay by the Bell. Then, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Good morning, Miss Bliss, and the Stay by the Bell. You got it. So <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Uh, I know my I know my '90s TV a little bit, '80s TV a little bit, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, then they were in Alaska and Russia and stuff like that, so they had some. Uh, well, Alaska is right across the street from Russia. You can sit out in Sarah Palin's yeah. porch and see Alaska and see Russia from there. It's right there. You <laughs> yeah, know that, right? exactly. Hey, um, yeah, your thoughts last night on the Pacers getting the win over Detroit? We talked about it earlier, Alex, but yeah, setting the pace. By the way, is where you can hear Alex Golden and. This was a game that is kind of a no-win situation because they were supposed to win the game, but it was definitely a trap win or a trap game. Your thoughts on it last night? Yeah, I thought that I thought the team really handled the professionalism of playing basketball in like such a crazy schedule. I thought they handled that game pretty well. You know, having to be in Vegas for the last five days, and then flying out. I believe it was Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and then getting into Detroit, not even going home, and then having to play, you know, at, at a different time zone that they were used to in Las Vegas. So I definitely think that the Pacers, it was a tough spot. And, and the Pistons, 19 games in a row that they lost at this point, too. They're trying not to get to 20, so they're definitely playing with more motivation at home. So it was an easy trap game, but I thought the team came in there and they, they handled business. And it wasn't the greatest, prettiest game, but they, uh, they found ways to, to pull one out. And I thought it was kind of a, was kind of a tough environment for them. Are they the, te- the deepest, Alex, team in the East? And I don't know. Here's the thing. Sometimes deep teams are deep because they're starting five in great. And so therefore there isn't a great disparity. I mean, they have a good starting five, obviously, but it does feel like it virtually in a position they can go two certainly, and maybe even three and not every team can do that. No, I think you're onto something there. I do think that their depth is their strength. So I, I'm actually with you there. I, I, I don't know about the deepest team in the East. I mean, you can make the case for it. 
I would have to really like go into a deep dive of like what other teams have in terms of depth. But when you have a guy like Matherin, McConnell, Aaron Neesmith off the off the bench, those those are all guys that could start. So I mean, I, I definitely think that you have to kind of sit there and say, okay, they have guys that could start that are off the bench. So their starters, yeah, Obi Toppin only played 12 minutes last night. Bruce Brown, he was kind of a sixth man last year on the championship team. So how good is their starters? Maybe they're not the greatest starting five, but they, they have a good group of guys that really click well together, and I think that on any given night could be any any one of those guys kind of stepping up and, and helping Tyrese Halliburton. Hey, Golden, good to hear your voice. Third straight game for Isaiah Jackson in double figures. Also third straight game with at least five rebounds. Is he playing well enough right now to potentially take that number two five spot? Because, of course, Jalen Smith is out. Not sure how long he'll be there. But is Isaiah Jackson playing well enough to keep that number two position at the five? That's a great question. I actually think that Isaiah Jackson has impressed a lot recently with what he's been able to do. I thought in that Lakers game, he probably played better than Miles, and that's no knock on Miles. Miles doesn't have a good game, but I thought Isaiah was actually very impactful in that game. He was very active. Yes, and and he was blocking shots, four block shots. And I feel like he's been a little bit quicker to the basketball this year in terms of protecting the rim, uh, unlike Miles. I feel like Miles has almost been like a, a step slow this year. Uh, in terms of like his rotations over, but uh, regardless, I mean, I, I still think Jalen Smith is going to be given the opportunity to to keep that spot once he comes back from injury. But I do think that it could be a, a shorter leash with him, and I think that if he's struggling a little bit, then Rick Carlisle will go back to Isaiah because Isaiah has proven the last week at least that he's he's trustworthy. But if you go back to last Monday against the Celtics, he didn't even get into the game, so I thought that was kind of surprising there. But he earned that trust, I think, with how he played the last three games. This probably files under, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of the fun of it, okay, I think that it's easy to get intoxicated, Alex Golden, by what took place with the in-season tournament. That game against the Lakers really did feel like it was like this big, important, holy cow, they got to win this game, and you know the whole city's watching and bars are packed. And you're like, it's December, and it's a tournament in the season that they just started this year. But clearly the Pacers have a competitive roster. So if they want to tweak that, if once the trade deadline rolls around, if they say to themselves, we learned from the in-season tournament that we need a big-bodied four that can bruise a little bit. We need a wing defender that can also shoot when the ball comes to him in rotation. If those players are available on the market, the players that the Pacers would be willing to part with to make that possible would be who? Good question. Um, You're going to have to look at guys that probably make bigger salaries. So you're looking at Buddy Heald and Bruce Brown, who are guys that are basically expiring. Same with T.J. McConnell. And then I think if you're looking at maybe some trade chips that would really entice players or entice teams, I think Jairus Walker has to be at the forefront of that. And I know that that's probably not what Pacer fans want to hear, but I don't see Indiana moving off of Benedict Matherin in year two. I, I think that they believe in what he can become, and they won't trade him. I think Andrew Nimhart is a little bit more of 50-50 for the Pacers, but with Jairus not being able to get into the rotation right now, him being so young and so raw, and this team kind of being a few steps ahead in terms of where they thought they might be uh, with their competitive level, and Tyrese Halliburton's ascension, I think that Jairus Walker is someone they could part ways with, um, as well as some of those other key veterans. But I don't think they'll go after two or three players. I would assume only one maybe big name if they do make a trade. But they're going to have to make a decision between Bruce Brown and Buddy Heald. And my gut says they would probably trade Buddy over Bruce just because they just signed Bruce in free agency and they want to make sure they send the right message to free agents that that come here, like, hey, we're not just going to – Sign you, then trade you to a team that is kind of in a rebuild. We're gonna we're gonna value our signing of you and keep you here. So that would be kind of my thought process. Here's the catch twenty two for me with Buddy Heald. I think we've seen Alex like, especially in the first quarter of this year, that we weren't ready just yet to elevate that Benedict Matherin like running mate status to go with Tyrese Halliburton, and Heald has such a quick release that. He gives them the outside shooting that is so coveted in the league, but he can do so fairly quickly when, especially with their pacing, he works really well with what they do. That's the real benefit of him, and I think this year they have 
benefited from him more than they perhaps even thought they were going to at that first half of this year, first quarter of the year. But the negative is every minute the Buddy Heald's on the floor for a large part of it, that means that Benedict Matherin is not. And Benedict uh-huh. Matherin needs those minutes to develop. It seems like a catch-22 because they're closer than they thought right now, but their future still exists probably within the development of Matherin. Your thoughts? No, I think that's a perfect way to describe it. And I feel like the one thing that Buddy Hill does with that offense is he spreads the floor so well, and he's constantly moving off ball. Benedict Matherin's not the same type of player. Benedict Matherin's not usually in an action. He's kind of just standing in the corner. And, you know, he doesn't have the same type of off-ball movement that a Buddy Hill does, let alone the threat from shooting from distance. So I understand why Buddy Hill fits into the system, but he's been very inconsistent this year with his shooting numbers. And I know – if you ask Rick Carlisle about it, he's going to tell you, you know, he's a he's a pro, he's going to figure it out, and he kind of broke out of his slump last night. I think he went 6-9 and nine against the Pistons. But he's been up and down this year, and defensively he's gotten better, I would say, as a team defender. His passing has gotten better. He does make sense fit-wise. And, and you might even value his fit more than a Bruce Brown. But I just feel like they, they talked about how Ben Shepard is very similar to Buddy Heald. And to me, that draft pick of – Ben Shepard was, okay, here's our Buddy Hill replacement in a couple of years, but at least I know with Ben Shepard that he is an experienced college player that it hopefully doesn't take him two or three years to really kind of get acclimated with the, the pace of the NBA. So I understand all the, the reasons why you wouldn't do it, especially the whole he's best friends with Tyrese Halliburton type thing. You have to consider that. But at the end of the day, if they can make a move that makes them better and it allows that space for Matherin to maybe grow a little bit more, then I, I'm fine with trading Buddy Heald, even though I do value what he brings to the table. You know, the the thing that you brought up there within just prior to that, that, that point in talking about guys, and I agree with Heald about him spacing the floor, but I want to go back to also your comment about Walker. I know he's young, really young, but he does seem to have been brought in under – the talking point that his area of skill set was the area that Indiana most covets right now, and that is physical mm-hmm. defender. Why is he not on the floor? Yeah, so from what I've what I've seen when he's played is he's just very kind of erratic in terms of not staying within the system. There's been a lot of times where he'll break out of the system from their defensive scheme or what they're trying to do to gamble on a play, and then he gets burned. And I don't think offensively he's there yet with what they're trying to do. He's got great feel for the game, but he's not a great shooter. And it just kind of feels like, okay, if you play him with Miles, then you're probably going to see fives guarding Jairus Walker because he's not a good shooter, which also puts fours on Miles, which kind of takes away the advantage of having Miles play against fives where he can stretch the floor. So I just feel like maybe off the bench he could maybe get a little bit more run and get a little bit of a chance to kind of see what they can do. But Right now, they're in the process of trying to find the balance of developing players while also trying to win. And I think that his development is going to come, but it's going to come during practices. It's going to come during you know, playing in the G League and, and putting up good numbers there and just building the right habits. But right now, I just don't think that they trust him enough to, to play within the scheme and the system that they want to play on a consistent basis. So I think that's why he's not getting those minutes. And at the same time, the guy that's playing those minutes he probably would be getting is Aaron Neesmith. And Aaron Neesmith has been so good this year, specifically playing that, that four, even though he's a little bit undersized. So I think right now, just having Toppin and Neesmith, those are just two guys Rick can trust a little bit more, and that's why Jarrett isn't seeing the floor. I'm a huge Alex. Alex Golden is our guest. I'm a huge Aaron Neesmith fan. Like, mm-hmm. might even be, to be honest with you, uncomfortable for like a grown man to admire an NBA player like I do Aaron Neesmith. Is that weird? I mean, I don't think anything's as bad as KB's admiration for Benedict Matherin. So, I mean... Yeah, I'm not statue stage just yet. I'm not talking about building a statue for Aaron Neesmith. But I do love... The thing I love about Aaron Neesmith is this. I just think every team needs an Aaron Neesmith. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I've mentioned this before that Reggie Miller is still probably the the biggest pillar in Pacers NBA franchise history, right? And mm-hmm. Rick Smith was his was was the guy that that balanced that offensively. And then talking to the guy that built that franchise, he said to me the most important player that we acquired was Dale Davis. 
I'm like, really? And he said, Dale Davis completely changed the trajectory of what we wanted to do in terms of our mindset, but he freed up everybody else to be in the spots they need to be. And I think that when Neesmith's on the floor, he's not doing the the like tone setting that Dale Davis does, but he does little things, Alec, that Alex, that then free up other players to do what they're out there specifically to do, and they don't have to worry about other things to help out when Neesmith's on the floor. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, it does. And and just to kind of piggyback off of that, I think he's fearless. And the the ability to go in there and, and just get in LeBron's grill and just make it difficult for LeBron. LeBron, I mean, he had an okay game in that championship game. I mean, everyone's going to blow it up because they won the championship, right? But it was Anthony Davis that carried that team and, and Austin Reeves and what he did. But I thought Aaron Neesmith really kind of annoyed the crap out of LeBron for the entirety of the game when he was in there. And there's nobody else on this Pacers team that can even come close to doing what he does defensively, let alone the amount of hustle and energy that he plays with on a night-to-night basis. So you're right. He is he is a dog, and, and, and you need more guys like that on this team that are not afraid to kind of junk it up and go out there and do whatever is asked of them because he could literally start on this team, and I wouldn't have a problem with that. But he's okay with coming off the bench, and I think that kind of helps smooth things out because he has no ego. He just wants to win basketball games and do whatever he can, uh, do whatever he can to impact the game. So – I love the way that Aaron Eastman plays basketball, and I'm right there with you. Like, the more I watch him, I'm just like, we got such a bargain of a deal when they signed him to that three-year extension. Like, people don't realize how valuable he is going to be to this team, especially when they make that run uh, and start, you know, winning playoff series here in the next three to four years. He's going to be a pivotal part of that, and I uh, I fully believe that he is the perfect fit for the Pacers. You know, I, I'll i be honest. I, I wondered when I was watching, I think it was in the Boston game, I was watching Neesmith, Alex, and I thought to myself, I wonder if he regrets signing that extension when he did. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, he because he does a little bit. Right, because like it, it would have increased now, right? Uh huh. I, I would assume so. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't even think he really cares about money as much as maybe some people would. I think he's just happy to be in a situation where he feels like he's wanted and he can go out there and play basketball how he wants to play. And, you know, he didn't get paid, like, a cheap amount of money. Like, he got $33 million, right? It's still a lot of money to these guys. It's life-changing money. It's a second contract. And had he stayed in Boston, would he have ever even gotten that kind of money? So probably uh, a little bit of a hometown discount there just because the Pacers took a chance on him and gave him that opportunity. But, yeah, I mean, he might have uh, maybe put a couple, you know, $6, $7 million extra on his contract had he waited until the end of the year. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Hey, Golden, even though Indiana, of course, made the magical run to the IST final, I, who knows if people across the NBA associate Indiana being just two games back of the Bucks, right, in the East. I mean, that's... That's dwindling. So just looking at tomorrow's game, what's on your mind most, especially after uh, the game against the Bucks here in Indianapolis? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, the Bucks. the Pacers have beat them twice now this year. And I think there's two things the Bucks can do to kind of eliminate Indiana from really getting off and winning this game. Number one, they just give the ball to Giannis like they did the first time they played the Pacers when Giannis had 54 points. I feel like Giannis could have had the same type of game that Anthony Davis had against the Pacers had they fed him more, but their offense was kind of going through Dame and doing different things like that. I also think Damian Lillard's going to be a little bit fired up for this one after Tyrese Halliburton did the it's my time now, kind of uh, gave, uh, gave a little love to Damian Lillard by doing his signature sign of tapping the wrist. And then the other thing, everyone was talking about it, how Tyrese Halliburton just obliterated their pick-and-roll coverage. They had no answer for that. They threw a zone at the Pacers, and I felt like Nimhart and, and, and Bruce Brown really just kind of made them pay for that by getting open in the middle of that zone and just hitting that little 10- to 12-foot jumper there, and no defense was contesting it. So the Bucks have their hands full. They don't really have the personnel to, to defend the Pacers like they might want to, but I guarantee we will see different uh, schemes on how they guard Tyrese Halliburton just because Halliburton – was obliterating their pick-and-roll coverage. And, and anytime they can get Brooke Lopez into a switch, he is so slow-footed he cannot stay with Tyrese, and Tyrese will just cook him all day on that coverage. So I, I expect the Bucks to be a little bit more motivated. Just they've gotten kind of, you know, they've kind of gotten embarrassed a couple different times by the Pacers. You know, they were the team that was supposed to beat them. So I, I think that that's kind of how you're going to see it. And then you have to wonder if the Pacers just 
another road game being on the road for so long, do they kind of just this fatigue finally hit them and, and make this a little bit more of a challenging game for them? Alex, how often, if at all, do you, since they are now locally based, do you get to see the Mad Ants play, the G League team? So a lot of their games are during the day when I'm at work, so I'm not able to check them out. But um, I have not been to a game yet this year, and I haven't really kept up, but I have seen that they're the number one team in the G League, and I think they've won like 10 or 11 in a row. So that's about the most I know about them. I've wondered this. Are they going to change their name from Mad Ants? Because they're the, they're named the Mad Ants yeah. after, you know, Fort Wayne. They were the Fort Wayne yeah. Mad Ants. So, do they change the name? What do they do there? Yeah, I think it was after Mad Anthony Wayne, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Uh, That's and, right. Yeah, yeah. And so they're going to Noblesville. I would assume they changed their name. <laughs> I know a lot of people in Fort Wayne were upset when they left, but I understand the logistics of why they did because Noblesville is a much closer drive than Fort Wayne is. So. Um, and, and maybe a little bit more scenic too than just taking 69 all the way. But uh, I, I, uh, I don't know what they're going to change the name to. I think that they should just ask fans to kind of throw out some ideas there and maybe come up with something interesting. But uh, the Mad Ants, it's a, it's a unique name. It's one that I think that it just kind of rolls up the tongue when you're saying the Fort Wayne Mad Ants. But Indiana Mad Ants does not really go together. You know, when I was a kid, Noblesville, I don't know if they still do this, but Noblesville, you know, their high school is the Millers. And if you lived in Noblesville, people would get bumper stickers that say, follow the Millers. And when I was a kid, I thought everybody that lived in Noblesville's last name was Miller because we were always behind them in the car. And I'm like, we're following the Millers. Like There are Millers all over the place in this town, right? But they can't call them the, the, the Indiana Millers because that's what Noblesville is. And that's unfair to the rest mm-hmm. of the area, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, unless they're unless they're paying like an homage to them and just like it's a respect. What, what's thing, the most right? famous thing in Noblesville? I mean, you got Deer Creek, right, or whatever it's called now, right? Yeah. Ruoff. You can't call them the Indiana Ruoffs. What What else could you could you come up with? I, I'm I I don't really live on that side of town, so I would have no idea. Is um, IKEA in Noblesville or Fishers? That's a great question. That I think that's Fishers. I think that's Fishers. Yeah, hmm. that would have been a good one, huh? That would have been a good one. Yeah, and you got Top Golf right across the, the Indiana street, Swedish right? Meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> the Indiana what's this extra screw right yeah you know I actually the most famous thing to happen in Noblesville is probably when they had the Deer Creek uh, Grateful Dead riots in like 92 I think it was 93 something like that it's just called the, the, the riots the Deadhead riots how's that that's an awesome team name just the Deadheads what about the Deadheads sounds pretty legit sounds a little scary a little intimidating um, hey lastly what do you want to see Alex from from Indiana coming off of like there was so much positive vibe energy coming off of the in-season tournament and growth, really. And I think it was really good for them to see defensively what happens when teams turn up the wick when there are things at stake. You know, 500 grand at stake, you saw when what happens defensively. And I thought L.A. was really aggressive defensively, and it was good for Indiana to learn that. But if the Pacers have taken a step in the last month, what do they need to do to show that that step is in fact solidified and it was not a fleeting fad because of the fact that they were caught up in the tournament? Yeah, I, I think they really just need to focus in on like what got them there, right? What what made them get up for these games was they were still trying to prove to everybody that they belong. They had a chip on their shoulder and they were playing with an edge. And I think if they can approach the rest of the season like that, every game is a prove-it game to the rest of the league that that wasn't a fluke. They, they are going to be looked at with a different lens now just because they got to this point. But if they are to stumble again and go on a big losing streak and really fail to compete with some of the upper echelon teams of the NBA, people are going to say, okay, that was just a silly little run they had back in December. They're not a serious team. But I think if they want to take that next step, they just need to continue you know, honing in on the fact that, okay, we proved to the world that we belonged here. Let's continue proving to the world that you know, we're, not, we're not satisfied with where we're at now. And I think Miles Turner had a great quote uh, when, when asked about being, you know, highlighted on first take, you know, saying like that's cute and all, but we want bigger, we want bigger things to happen with this team. We want more national recognition for the way we play. And that's, what's going to get us on national TV. So I think that's the main thing for me is just like learning how to, okay, you know, it's a different field. There's, you're not getting up for these games because they don't count as much, but it still counts towards your 82 game regular season schedule. And you have this opportunity to kind of prove to everybody that you belong. So that, for me, is what I'm most hopeful to see is just, like, 
can they keep up now that they've got this semi-target on their back a little bit more than they had before? Can they play at that high level? And also, can they just beat the teams that they're supposed to beat? We've seen that happen too many times this year where they lose to teams that they should have beaten, like a Charlotte, like a Chicago, like a Portland. They can't let those games slip away from them. They have to take care of business against the teams that are lesser than them and, and that aren't on their same level because that's what's going to separate them from being a playoff team versus a play-in team. Alex, I have not yet seen, and I don't know if you have, television numbers for the championship game on Saturday night because I'm curious. It's been a long time, guys, and I know, you know, I remember during some of the great playoff runs the Pacers had where the phrase around town was simply, you know, what are you doing for the game? And everyone knew what you were talking about. And that's what it was like Saturday night. I mean, it was like, what are you doing for the game? What are you, you know, are you going to watch the game? And I'm curious if that was true outside of the Indianapolis market. Eddie, do you have the ratings you said? Yes, per Clutch Sports, it averaged 4.58 million viewers on ABC and ESPN2. That is the most watched non-Christmas NBA game during the regular season in six years. So there, Alex, mission accomplished, right? Because wasn't the goal here to let the, you know, the goal was to let the guy on his couch in Council Bluffs, Iowa, or in you know, Galveston, Texas, know that the NBA does play before Christmas, right? Yeah, and uh, I think it did. It, I did it. Did the end season tournament did its job, right? I had people asking me left and right that I work with. They know I do a podcast. I know I talk about the Pacers, but they don't really say much to me throughout the season. But as soon as they started making the tournament, and they were like, "Man, the Pacers are in Vegas. That's really cool. Like, what's going on?" Like, I started getting all these questions to me, like, "What's happening?" And I do think that it did spark the interest of people for the month of December. And that's exactly what you want to see from the NBA. And and let's be honest, you know, LeBron being in there, the Lakers being in there for the championship, that did probably help increase the numbers because it's a huge market. But at the same time, I think that getting that established with LeBron in there and, and letting people know what it's about and how, you know, that game was pretty competitive for the most part. I mean, the Pacers hung in there for the majority of the game, even though they never really had a, a lead really in that game. I, I think that people are going to be more excited about it moving forward. And then the way LeBron and Anthony Davis kind of celebrated afterwards, they're hanging the banner, they're, they're popping champagne. I think that kind of sets the precedent for what to expect moving forward for other teams. So I definitely think that it, it did what it was supposed to do. And I really enjoyed it. I think they did a great job of making basketball interesting in November and December. It actually, for me, was a reminder of like, oh yeah, like, the Pelicans are able to play well when Zion's there. Honestly, and I don't even mean that flippantly, just because that's a franchise you don't hear yeah. as much about, right? And you've got to right. it's gotta remind you that that probably is the mentality about Indiana by a lot of Western conference markets that may not pay attention throughout the course of certainly the regular season when it comes to the Eastern Conference. Again, Alex Golden mm-hmm. at Alex Golden NBA on X Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Alex, appreciate the time. Absolutely, guys. Thank you so much.